How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Flick on a light switch in the United States, and chances are you'll be poking your finger into a coal mine somewhere in the country. About half of the nation's electricity is supplied by coal, thanks in part to policies from the 1970s that favor the abundant American source of energy. But coal is also among the dirtiest fossil fuels and a major source of carbon pollution that is driving global weirding. Should the United States move away from coal to cleaner power? Should it make coal itself cleaner? One of Cole's biggest critics is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., noted author, attorney, and environmental advocate. He's featured in the new documentary film, The Last Mountain, which depicts the lives of people in the coal mining towns of Appalachia. For the next hour, Mr. Kennedy and our live audience in San Francisco will discuss the extraction and combustion of coal, as well as broader national energy issues. So please welcome Robert F. Kennedy to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for coming. So a lot of the preference for coal goes back to the 1970s when American policies sort of gave uh, deliberate preference to a U.S. source of energy. A lot of presidents have, have promised energy independence. They haven't delivered it yet. What do you think America should do for a comprehensive national energy policy? Well, you know, for 27 years, I've been an environmental advocate for 27 years, and for 27 years I've had the same answer that question, which is free market capitalism. People say to me, what's the most important environmental law that we could be, we could pass? And I would say, I've always said the same thing. It's free market capitalism because in a true free, a true free market promotes efficiency and efficiency means the elimination of waste and pollution is waste. And a, a true free market would encourage us to properly value our natural resources. And it is the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wastefully. But in a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for everybody else. And they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay his production costs. And coal claims to be cheap, um, but actually it's probably the most catastrophically expensive way to boil a pot of water that it has ever been devised. If you, you know, I spent a lot of time in West Virginia over the past two and a half decades. I had a six and a half week jury trial in West Virginia about uh, a year and a half ago, and I won the biggest judgment in the history of the state. I was back in the state about three months ago arguing the appeal of that judgment before the West Virginia Supreme Court. And as I was leaving the state, I was driving on a highway that had that felt like it was driving on a cushion. It was so, it was so soft, it was almost like a skateboard park. And that's very unusual in West Virginia. West Virginia is the 49th poor state. My father used to say, you know, coal claims to be bringing prosperity to this state, but it's got a state with the richest resources in our country, but it has the 49th poorest people. And coal has brought poverty and destruction and, 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 and a disability and dysfunction to the state, not prosperity. But good roads are hard to find in West Virginia. But um, and I asked the driver, why is this? Why does it feel like we're driving on a cushion? He said, because there's 22 inches of asphalt on this road. And the reason I knew there was why the Massachusetts Turnpike has four to six inches, the New York State Thruway is six to eight inches. Every inch of asphalt costs the taxpayer millions of dollars. Um, and yet, uh, and I knew the reason they had. 22 inches of asphalt because the coal trucks weigh 90,000 pounds and they'll pulverize less robust roads. So when coal says that 
that coal, the coal industry is not paying for that 22 inches of asphalt. And that road has to be repaired every four years, whereas a regular highway has to be repaired every 20 years. So, And it's not the coal industry that's paying that bill. It's you and I, the taxpayer. So coal says it's cheap. They say we're only 11 cents a kilowatt hour. But they're not telling you you're also paying for that that uh, those 3,000 miles of coal roads in West Virginia. That's coming out of a different pocket. Last year, the National Academy of Sciences said that a 10-year study they completed that showed that every single freshwater fish in America now has dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. That mercury is coming from coal-burning power plants. Uh, one out of every six American women now have so much mercury in her womb from, from eating those fish and from other vectors that her children are at, are at a grim risk for a, 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 for a grim inventory of diseases, autism, blindness, mental retardation, heart, liver, and kidney disease. I have so much mercury in my body. I got my levels tested recently, and I, I fish a lot, and I eat the fish. My levels are 10 times what EPA considers safe. And I was told by Dr. David Carpenter, who is the National Authority on Mercury Contamination, that a woman with my levels of mercury in her blood would have children with cognitive impairment, with permanent brain injury. Well, today, according to CDC, there are 647,000 children born in this country every year who've been exposed to dangerous levels of mercury in their mother's wombs. That's a cost on our country that they don't tell you about when they say, oh, it's only 11 cents a kilowatt hour. Last week, Harvard published a study, a peer-reviewed study by Paul Epstein, that showed the cost of coal from uh, the cost of, of health impacts to our national health system just from ozone and particulates is $345 billion a year. And that's part of the cost of burning coal. 10 million asthma attacks a year, a million lost work days. Um, the, uh, I, I live two hours south of the Adirondack Mountains. This is the oldest protected wilderness on the face of the earth. It's it, it, generations of Americans had the rightful expectation that they would be able to enjoy those landscapes unspoiled. But today, one-fifth of the lakes in the Adirondacks is sterilized, dead from acid rain, which has also destroyed the forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia to northern Quebec. I'm not, I'm going to uh, a uh, the movie screening. It starts at 7.30 tonight down the road. So I don't want to say, and many of the people who are here are going to that, and I'm not going to repeat um, anything that I say here. And those of you who see the movie will see what's happened, which is that this industry has, over the past 10 years, they've cut down the 500 biggest mountains in West Virginia. They've, they've flattened an area of Appalachia larger than the state of Delaware. If you put, if you filled 25 mile, feet of a Hudson River stream, we would put you in jail. If you blew up a mountain in the Sierras up here, or in Utah, or Colorado, or the Berkshires, or in Appalachia, you would go to jail, or you'd be put someplace for the criminally insane. But in Appalachia, they're able to cut down 500 mountains, and it's all illegal. And they've been able to bury not 25 feet of streams, but 2,500 miles of rivers and streams. And they do it by subverting democracy. This is, and by hiding what they're doing from the public. Because what they're doing is illegal. You, you saw me ask Bill Rainey, who's the head of the Coal Association, and I asked the same thing in a debate last year with the head of the CEO of, of, um, of Massey Coal, I said to him, you've had, by your own records, 67,000 violations in five years and tens of thousands of violations of other mining and safety laws. Can you make a profit in your industry without breaking the law? And he said, no. He acknowledged he does operate a criminal enterprise. His business plan is to break the law and then to to disable, to subvert democracy so that the law is not enforced against them. And that, that, that destruction of democracy is another cost of coal that they don't tell you about when they say it's only 11 cents a kilowatt hour. We give to the oil industry $1.3 trillion in subsidies every year. Um, if you don't believe that figure, look at Terry Tamminen's new book, Lives Per Gallon, which Terry Tamminen just stepped down as head of California EPA 
And he has meticulously and scrupulously inventoried the vast raft of subsidies that we give to oil every year. This is the richest industry in the history of the world. We borrow a billion dollars a day in our country. People talk about, you know, the, the trade imbalance with China. Well, that's nothing compared to the trade imbalance with the oil co- countries. We borrow a billion dollars a day mainly from nations that don't share our values in order to import a billion dollars of oil a day. A lot, again, largely from nations that don't share our values. And this hemorrhage of $750 billion annually of American wealth has beggared a nation that when I was a little boy owned half the wealth on the face of the planet. Our deadly addiction to carbon is the principal drag on American capitalism. Now, in last year in November, Lord David Putnam gave a speech before Parliament when Parliament was debating a cap-and-trade system that's very similar but actually much tougher than the one that we passed in the in Congress and then that was defeated in the Senate and it was the mainstay of President Obama's national energy policy. And um, to its credit, Parliament ultimately passed that bill. But there, in, in our country, half the people don't believe that global warming exists because of, and, and I was talking to somebody a few minutes ago, they said, why is that? Well, it's because the propaganda works. And Exxon and Koch brothers have spent $200 million, uh, you know, erecting phony think tanks and, and filling them with these phony scientists who we call biostitutes and, and, you know, and uh, employing these slick PR firms to persuade the American public that uh, global warming doesn't exist and propaganda works. Joseph Goebbels used to say, talk about the big lie. If you tell it again and again and again, ultimately people will believe it. And that's what's happening. But in, in Great Britain, they haven't experienced that. People generally accept the science. They understand that it's a grim reality that government has to take a strong hand in enforcing. And ultimately, Parliament passed the bill. But there's still vested interest in other people in England who said that, who you know, we, we have to move incrementally. We have to move slowly because if we move precipitously, it's going to cause grave dislocations in the marketplace and our economy. That's going to impede our ability to address this and other issues. And it's going to be bad for our country. And Lord Putnam reminded Parliament that exactly 200 years before, the same body had debated the abolition of the slave trade. And at that time, everybody in England believed that slavery was an abomination, a moral catastrophe that had to be abolished. But people said, how do we do it? Because slavery represented 25% of the GNP of Great Britain. It was the principal source of energy for the entire British Empire. And they said, if we abolish it outright, the economy is going to crater. But after a year of debate, Parliament made the moral choice and abolished slavery literally overnight. And instead of collapsing, the British economy exploded as thousands of entrepreneurs rushed into that space to create new forms of energy, mainly mechanical ones, in an era that we now know as the Industrial Revolution, which was the greatest epic in wealth creation in the history of mankind. And the abolition of the slave trade had exposed all of these hidden inefficiencies that were associated with free human bondage. Well, today, we don't need to abolish carbon in this country in order to understand that our deadly addiction to it is the principal enemy to America's prosperity, to our leadership, to our national security, to the values that make us proud to be part of this country to the historic role that my family always believed in of America as an exemplary nation. We do know this, that every nation that has decarbonized its society has experienced instantaneous wealth. Iceland in 1970 was the poorest country in Europe. It was 100% dependent on imported coal and oil. The government of Iceland, mainly because they were frightened of global warming, which impacts the northern latitudes disproportionately, decided to decarbonize their society. But again, you had vested interest in others who, 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 who tried to hold back and impede that process. But the government moved very deliberately. And during that period, Iceland became 100% energy independent. So 95% of Iceland's net, uh, electric grid now comes from local geothermal. And Iceland went from, during that 15-year period, from being the poorest country in Europe to being the fourth richest country by GDP on Earth. Now, unfortunately for Iceland, they spent virtually all of their newfound wealth on bundled derivatives, and they are, again, (laughs) the poorest country in Europe. But 
their economy is rebounding and will rebound because the fundamentals now are strong. Iceland is one of the world's great energy exporters. They can't run lines across the Atlantic because it's too far. They will be able to, incidentally, very soon because Great Britain is building big, these great, under Gordon Brown's plan, these giant wind farms in the North Atlantic, and they're close enough to Iceland that they're going to be able to attach a DC grid line and then sell their energy directly to Europe. And they're, they're going to be very, very wealthy. But right now, Iceland imports bauxite from Jamaica, uses the big surplus of geothermal to smelt the bauxite into aluminum, then sells the ingots on the world market, and that's their way of exporting energy. Sweden, in 1996, decided to decarbonize their society and shut down their nuclear power plants. They closed their two biggest nuke plants, slapped a $150 ton tax on carbon, and Sweden's economy since 1996 has grown by 45%, while its energy use has dropped by 9%. Brazil, 20 years ago, decarbonized its transportation grid, and as a direct result of that choice, Brazil, while the entire world economy spiraled and collapsed, Brazil continues to enjoy the longest, most robust economic expansion in the history of Latin America. I was talking to some friends tonight about the fact that Brazil this year will displace France as the fifth richest country on earth. Costa Rica, at the same time, decarbonized their electric grid and as a, as a result of that choice, and Costa Rica made some other great choices, too, like not having an army. And as a result of that, Costa Rica, which is the smallest country in Central America, is by far the wealthiest. Its economy is larger than most of its neighbors combined. You can go on and on with those examples. But we in our country have much greater geothermal resources than they have in Iceland. My home in Mount Kisco, New York, is powered by geothermal. Virtually every home outside of the major cities in our country could be. But almost nobody uses geothermal because of the illusion that geothermal is more expensive than the incumbents. It isn't. If you added the subsidies, it's far less expensive. But the market, the, the subsidies have distorted the market and sent the wrong signals to purchasers and consumers. So very few people use geothermal, which is far cheaper than oil and coal and, you know, doesn't get us in wars in the Mideast and doesn't impose all these other costs in our society. Um, we're the number one in the world for wind. The Great Plains states of the Saudi Arabia of wind. We have enough wind. In fact, North Dakota is the windiest place on Earth at sea level. We have enough wind, according to a recent report by the Scientific American in, uh, in Montana, North Dakota, and Texas to provide 100% of the, of the energy grid for the U.S. and Canada three times over, even if every American owns an electric car. We're number one or two in the world for for solar, the uh, Scientific American report showed that we could power the entire existing U.S. energy grid from an area of the desert southwest that's 75 miles by 75 miles, about 19% of the most barren desert land. The, we have, I've been privileged to be an advisor to the, um, to the current administration, the Obama administration on energy policy. All of the leaders of that administration, Stephen Chu, Ken Salazar, Lisa Jackson, and the others, want to transition us to a new energy economy. The barriers are these, and this is the answer to your, the long answer to your short question. <laughs> Number one, um, the, the unfair advantage that the incumbents have because of the subsidies that are flowing to them, so we're not playing on a level playing field. Obama tried to correct that first by abolishing the subsidies, the direct subsidies, like the oil depletion allowance, which is 35 to $55 billion a year, and the waiver of royalties to the oil industry, and um, to address the indirect subsidies through the carbon uh, tax and you know, to the, you know, the cap-and-trade system, and that failed. But even with the subsidies, because of innovation, the, the cascading innovation that we're seeing in solar and wind, those renewables are now approaching parity with the incumbents, even with the huge advantage, unfair advantage they have in the marketplace. Number two, this is the most important, we don't have an energy grid in this country that can carry these new currents of energy. Our energy grid is antiquated, it was underbuilt, it is already overpowered, and it's misaligned. It doesn't reach the big wind centers in the Midwest, the solar centers in the desert southwest, and it is it's smart. It is dumb. Uh, it's a dumb grid, and it does not. Uh, it does not. It's incapable of doing long-haul transmission of energy. Virtually every farmer in the state of North Dakota wants to put wind turbines on their property. 
And you have huge mountains of private capital. From, I'm on the board of the biggest green tech venture capital firm in the country, which is located right here in San Francisco, Vantage Point, and by far the most profitable. There, um, and in fact, they're, the, they're, they're among the top of performing venture capital firms in any uh, discipline, in any space. So um, uh, they want to go into North Dakota and build wind farms. And, and, and big players like Siemens, Investus, and General Electric, and Warren Buffett, and T. Boone Pickens all want to go there. There's huge piles of cash surrounding the state of North Dakota waiting to flow in and build turbines on every property. Every farmer in North Dakota wants to build the turbines. Why? Because a North Dakota wind farm, a North Dakota cornfield is worth $800. If it's got a wind turbine on it, it's worth 3000 We have the ability now to, with wind, to create prosperity in, in declining rural economies, to create jobs, um, and to enrich farmers, and to allow them to hold on to their farms, which is a really critical part of democracy. The problem is the North Dakota wind farmer cannot get his product to market, the, the electrons to market, because the electrons will diffuse in our current lines before they cross the North Dakota border. So they can't reach Cincinnati or Cleveland, Columbus, St. Louis, New Orleans, or New York. And we need to build a grid system in our country, and the Obama administration is now doing this piece by piece, a unified national grid that will connect these, um, you know, the, the, the renewable power generation centers to the markets in our country. The same way that Eisenhower built a national highway system back in the 60s. We need to do that with the grid, and we need to build a smart grid. And yesterday, the headlines in many papers across the country were that Obama's going to make this one of his primary um, objectives between now and the election to start implementing the smart grid in our country, and, and that's very, very encouraging. Uh, and the third uh, issue, the impediment that they um, that they face is that we have an arcane... We have a, a balkanized system where we have 50 public utility commissions in the 50 states and 120 control districts, each with their own arcane and Byzantine set of rules that restrict access to the grid. What we need, what the Obama administration understands, is a unified national grid that acts as a marketplace where everybody, people like me, I, you know, I produce far more energy than I use in my home. I ought to be able to sell that surplus onto the grid and make market rates for it. Today, there's very few places where you can do that. Every American ought to be able to do that. We need to create a national market where everybody can participate, one that democratizes our energy system in this country rather than, than one that creates oligarchies. And, and, you know, the economic system, the political system reflects the economic system. And if you have an energy sector that's controlled by a couple of people, you ultimately are going to have a, a politics that is controlled by a couple of large corporations, which is not good for our, for our country. We need to create a marketplace that does what a market is supposed to do, which is to reward efficiency, re- to reward good behavior, which is efficiency, and to punish bad behavior, which is inefficiency and waste. Right now, we have a marketplace that is governed by rules that were written by the incumbents, coal, oil, and nuke, to reward the dirtiest, filthiest, most poisonous, most destructive, most addictive fuels from hell rather than the cheap, clean, green, wholesome, safe, and patriotic fuels from heaven. And we need to change that dynamic around. So what are some... Um, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. I'm Greg Dalton. What are some specific policies that should be implemented that would level that playing field between incumbents and, and clean technology? Well, you know, it's really about, like I said, about creating a market. And when you create that unified market, national market, um, you turn every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant like mine, and we can power our country then based upon American resourcefulness and entrepreneurship and what Franklin Roosevelt called American industrial genius rather than Saudi Arabian oil. We've done this before. We built, you know, all the great infrastructure in our country was built by government. That's the role of one of the primary roles of government, the canal system, the road system, the highway system, the railroad system, the airline system, airports were all built by the federal government. And then private entrepreneurs come and create wealth. But the infrastructure has to be built by government. So, you know, in 1979, we built an ARPANET grid in this country, which which was a grid for the Internet that connected every American home so everybody could participate in the, the Internet. A year later, and I actually watched a documentary on last night on TV 
uh, about this. It was very interesting about the growth of the ARPANET. But a year later, in 1980, the CEO of IBM said that PCs, personal computers, were a dead-end technology. Okay, and, and a lot of other computer companies made that bet, like Dell and MCR and Honeywell, and they're out of the computer business because they just bet wrong, because they didn't see what the market was going to do to revolutionize computer technology and put it and democratize it, put it in the hands of everybody. Well, today, everybody, because we built that marketplace, everybody has a PC. And what happened to the cost of information? It plummeted to almost zero. In fact, I would say zero. One of the companies, you know, that Vantage Point has is a company called ChaCha. Has anybody here heard of it? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. See, it's just the young people. Yeah. So anyway, ChaCha is a is a company that you you dial on your cell phone. ChaCha, C H A C H A. It's two four seven two four seven. Then you can ask any question that you want, and usually within a minute they'll answer that question. It's free and free. They make their money by putting little advertisements while you wait. But it's free information forever. I was in China the other day, and I, I was showing this to um, to some Chinese friends of mine. And I said, ask me any question. And, um, and they said, okay, what was Mao Zedong's favorite lunchtime meal? So I put it in there, and it comes back in 30 seconds, uh, spicy brown bean soup over fried rice. Right? You can ask anything. When is he going to stop talking? When is, you know... <laughs> What, you know, what's the meaning of life? Anything you want, and it'll try to answer it. So um, this is free information forever, and it happened because we built that grid. The same thing is going to happen to electrons as soon as we build a national grid for electricity. In 1996, we built a national grid for telecommunications. Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act. He ordered all the baby bells to unify their lines and to uh, and, and to lift all the restrictions, so anybody could get onto the lines and sell their product. The lowest cost provider prevails in the marketplace. This spawned a telecommunications revolution in our country, and all these little gadgets that we have, like iPhones and stuff, um, are the offspring of that revolution. But what happened to the cost of telecommunications? Well, it plummeted to virtually zero. Uh, two days ago, I saw an advertisement, which and, and these ads are ubiquitous on TV now, from a company called Vonage that promises unlimited overseas, long distance, and local calls for $14. That's practically free. Now, about three months ago, I called Miami from Miami to London, and the call for five minutes, the call cost me $74. That's the old way of doing things. The new way with the national grid is free telecommunications forever. The same thing is going to happen to electrons as soon as we build this national grid for electricity. Now, I'll How is a broke federal government going to invest this much money to build a national grid? Well, you know, the, the grid itself is not going to cost that much. The grid itself it will probably cost about $250 billion to build a smart grid that reaches most of America and that, you know, that can do the things that we need to do, like... I can send signals through the line, allow the utilities to send a signal through the line to turn off the hot water boilers in a million homes for 15 minutes in order to avoid the peak demand that is the most expensive part of our electrical system. If you eliminate a peak, you save enough natural gas in our country to power the entire U.S. Uh, passenger car fleet. So, And we can do that just by using the grid smartly. A, a, a grid to send a signal to... Tend to Turn off all the electric toothbrush rechargers, you know, uh, to, to turn off your swimming pool recirculators and all of these things. You don't care if somebody could, turns them off for 15 minutes and you sign something. It can go into your car and borrow the, uh, the stored electricity in your car, in your battery, whether you got a plug-in hybrid or a, uh, or a plug-in car. And the, um, and so we need to build a smart grid. That costs very little, about a um, about four months of the Iraq war. We have a whole national grid in this country. Then to build the generation for that grid will cost about, and I can tell you this, and let me give you an example that shows you how. Um, I, right now, one of our portfolio companies is called, it's called BrightSource. And BrightSource is building the biggest power plant in America, which is in the Mojave Desert, and it's a solar thermal plant. This is not solar voltaic of the kind that your grandmother used to bolt to her roof. These are, this is a mirror farm in the desert 
where they put a turbine on top of a, of a tower, a giant scaffold, and they surround it by concentric rings of mirrors that are manipulated by computers to reflect sunlight onto that turbine. And 20 minutes after the sun comes up in the morning, that turbine's at 750 degrees Fahrenheit. So a very efficient way of generating energy. We're building this plant in three years. Well, it costs ten, takes 10 years to build a coal plant. We can build this in three years. It costs $3 billion a gigawatt to construct. That's the same price it costs to build a coal plant. It's one-fifth the price it costs to build a nuke plant. So, and once you build our plant, it's free energy forever. Because the photons are hitting the earth for free every day. All we have to do is construct the infrastructure to pick them up and put them in the line. Once you build that coal plant, now you gotta go to the Appalachians, cut down the mountains, ship them across the country on rail yards, warp every rail in this country so we can't have a high-speed rail, burn the coal, poison every fish, kill 60,000 people a year, cause 10 million asthma attacks, you know, acidify the lakes and all the other costs. Once you build an oil plant for the same three billion, and remember ours is then free, once you build that oil plant, now you gotta go to Saudi Arabia, punch holes in the ground, bring up the oil, refine it expensively, genuflect to the sheiks who despise democracy and are hated by their own people, get in periodic wars that cost us $3 trillion, escorted across the Atlantic with a military escort that Exxon, that Exxon doesn't pay for, you and I do. Then you spill it all over the Gulf, spill it all over Valdez, burn the oil and poison everybody in our country. And so the big costs occur after you build the plant. Once you build our plant, it's free energy forever. John, okay, John Buller, the CEO of that. Let me finish this. He drives, he's talking too much. <laughs> let me just finish them to answer your question to the math. Here's the math. We use 1,000 gigawatts in peak, in peak demand in our country. 500 of those, so that's what we've got to replace. 500 of those are carbon-based. So that's what we really have to replace to have free energy fee the others are nuke and hydro, et cetera, that, that are essentially free operation at this point. So five hundred at two percent growth over the fifty year life of power plant, you have to double that. But you can cut it back in half by conservation, by building codes and you know and appliances, what we call megawatts, which are the cheapest form of energy. So conservatively, we have a trillion, we have a thousand gigawatts to replace. At three billion dollars a gigawatt, which is what wind and solar cost, that is about three trillion dollars, which is less than the cost of the Iraq war. So for less than the cost of the Iraq war, we can have free energy forever in this country. And then what happens? That's the biggest tax break that has ever occurred, and it's permanent. Because the biggest cost to businesses and individuals in this country is our energy cost. And if you can eliminate those, which we can, then you suddenly have an advantage over the rest of the world in everything you produce, plus all the technological advantages that we get from incentivizing entrepreneurship and imagination and invention in order to construct and build this grid. And, you know, I'll just say this one, this, this, you know, final point, which is this, that in 1929, just in October, just before the stock market crash, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 385. In 1942, the Dow Jones was at 85. So the big stimulus package that FDR passed that we now call the New Deal kept thousands of Americans, millions of Americans alive, millions of farmers on their farms, millions of Americans in their home, thousands of banks from folding. But it was not robust enough to restore the market economy. Then in 1940, President Roosevelt gave a famous speech, one of the most important speeches in our history to our country. He went on the radio and he said, World War II is in the horizon. Remember, Pearl Harbor was still a year away, but we were doing the Lend-Lease program with England. And he said, we're going to build 50,000 aircraft a year. His aides later admitted that he had torn that number out of thin air before he sat down five minutes before the year before, we had built 2,800 aircraft in our country. He said, we're going to build 50,000. He said, we're going to build 25,000 tanks. We're going to build a ship a day, a battleship a month, an aircraft carrier every three months. We're going to do it every month until the war is over and won. People laughed at him. He was ridiculed by editorialists on the left and the right. They said, no industrial mobilization has occurred of this magnitude in history. 
He's bitten off more than he can chew. But Roosevelt went immediately out to Detroit. And he told the automakers, you're not building automobiles anymore. You're building aircraft, and you're building tanks, and half-tracks, and amphibious vehicles, and bombs, and detonators. Within six weeks, they had retooled their plants. Within six months, they were they had met his production goals. Within 12 months, they had surpassed them. The following year, we built 96,000 aircraft in this country. We had full employment. 160,000 women went to Detroit and found jobs where they'd been blackballed before with Rosie the Riveter. 200,000 blacks went to Detroit and found jobs where they'd been blackballed before. We had full employment. Everybody had cash in their pocket, and they began investing it in the marketplace again. And the market recovered, gave us a middle class, which gave us stability and prosperity for the next 50 years and made our country the envy of the world. And today, we have a huge advantage over Roosevelt. Because Roosevelt was building, was building stranded assets, planes and tanks and bombs that were being sent over to be blown up that had no lasting benefit to the American people. Today, we have the capacity to build infrastructure, pylons that stretch across the country with wires down the existing right-of-way and railroads to bring North Dakota wind to the markets in New York, etc., with DC lines that don't lose the electrons. We, um, uh, to, to employ uh, thousands of Americans erecting wind turbines on every farm in the Midwest and, and millions more to, to bolt photovoltaics to every south and facing roof in America that wants them and millions more to blow in cellulosic insulation to every home in America that wants those. And at the end of that, we have an infrastructure that will give us free energy forever. And then you have the entrepreneurs and the businesses take over and take advantage of this huge advantage that we now have. And that will gives us prosperity and jobs. We already have in this country, you know, we crossed a critical milestone this year. We built in this country more wind and solar last year than we did all the generation capacity, than all the incumbents combined. And that is a critical milestone in the adaptation of disruptive technologies. The year that you build more than one, of one than the other. And say, flat screen TVs 10 years ago, everybody said, it'll never happen. It cost $10,000 a piece. Five years ago, for the first time, we sold more flat screen TVs than we did vacuum tube. This year, the last vacuum tube manufacturer closed down, right? That's how fast it can happen. Once you hit that tipping point, which is the year you produce more of the one form of the energy than the other, nobody knows it because the other one is so dominant in the marketplace. Nobody notices it. But that is the milestone that you look for when the disruption, the displacement is about to take place. And we've done that in our country. And we have, you know, this is going to happen because, not because government tells it, but because the market is going to drive it there. Because we can produce cars that go, you know, and, and that get six cents, that cost six cents a mile over the life of the car to, to drive electric cars versus an internal combustion engine that costs 60 cents. How long can they maintain that? It's just not going to happen. And we can produce energy for free. And so they, you know, oil and coal and all these incumbents have a huge advantage now because they own Congress and they own the Senate. But the market ultimately is going to drive us there and it's going to drive us there fast. We're at the tipping point now and you're about to watch the cascade. We're about to go to audience questions also and see if you can ask a question. Um, the uh, uh, point here, we're going to put the microphone up here and I'll just ask one question and ask you again on this side to, to come around. Um, you mentioned a presidential leadership and your advisor to the Obama administration. The Los Angeles Times recently wrote an editorial saying that President Obama has been a bit of a disappointment on environment issues. He didn't deliver a climate bill. Uh, he has done some things on investing in light and high-speed rail and increased auto efficiency standards. Uh, how would you assess how well the Obama administration has done on, on energy so far? Well, I would say that if the Obama administration did what it wanted to do, what President Obama wants it to do, that we would have done all the things that I just talked about. The problem is um, that president that our democracy is broken. The press is broken in this country. Um, we have uh, 30% of Americans now getting their their uh, their information from talk radio, which is 95% controlled by the right. We have uh, 22% getting their news from um, from uh, Fox News. Uh, and uh, and we have an oil, we have a, our campaign finance system, which is just a system of legalized bribery, has just been opened um, by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Citizens United case, which is the most disastrous opinion. 
You know, H.L. Mencken said that a journalist is somebody who can't distinguish between a bicycle accident and the end of civilization. Well, the Citizens United case is the end of civilization, the end of democracy. We have a hundred-year-old law that said corporations cannot contribute to federal political candidates or office holders. And the Supreme Court just wiped that out, and we have a tsunami of corporate wealth that is now flooding into the political process and is going to dictate the direction of this country rather than the republic and the democracy. And that is a catastrophe for our country, and Obama has run up against that wall. You know, he passed it through Congress, but you have a uh, a Senate that essentially are a group of, of corporate toadies for coal and oil. They're the carbon cronies. And that's, you know, they're representing their interest rather than the interest of the American people. And, you know, Obama, it's not fair to, um, you know, to to say Obama has failed when, you know, the same thing with his health care. He's, he's running up against ph- pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry has under its control all of the news organizations. 70% of, the, of advertising on network news now comes from pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that they're actually going to control, that they're going to support something uh, that, that uh, damages their interest? The rest of advertising is coming from the automobile industries and the oil industries. The reason that, um, that Air America failed was not because they didn't have listeners. They had more lists. They were beating Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh in every market. They were the number one radio station in um, in uh, uh, in Republican in San Diego, for example, this is a Republican town. And so it wasn't listeners. It wasn't the hunger for progressive talk. It was the, that they could not get advertising. They were advertising, you know, hair products and penis enlargement and you know and, and these gold scam companies. You know, because they couldn't get national advertisers because they were boycotted by the pharmaceutical industry, the oil industry, the coal industry, and the and the auto and the um, uh, you know oil coal, all of the the major national advertisers. And uh, and you know, we and that happened because the, the abolition of the fairness doctrine by Ronald Reagan in 1988, where you know the 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 media no longer has the obligation to serve the public interest. They're now serving their shareholders' interest, and they do that not by telling us the issues that we need to understand to make rational decisions in a democracy, but rather by entertaining us. So we're today, you know, by appealing to the prurient interest that all of us have in the reptilian core of our brains for sex and celebrity gossip. So we know a lot about Charlie Sheehan, and we know a lot about Britney Spears' gradual, you know, emotional decline, well, we know very little about what's happening in Appalachia or about, you know, about uh, about global warming or the things we need to know. We're the best entertained and least informed people on the face of the earth. And we cannot keep our international leadership or our democracy if we don't have an informed public that is capable of recognizing all the milestones of tyranny and telling the truth from fiction. You know, in Canada, they don't allow lying on television. It's illegal on the television news to lie. That's why Fox News is not in Canada. And that's why, that's why the Canadians didn't follow us into Iraq, into a, you know, an 800 year old fistfight in Mesopotamia where Dick Cheney was saying, oh yeah, they're going to meet us with flowers in the streets. The Canadians were saying, are you crazy? Because they weren't listening to Fox News. And, you know, and, and that, that, the, the 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 devolution of the American media and the and um, the, the lack of campaign finance, those are two legs of the st- three-legged stool of democracy that have folded in our country. And you know, anybody who looks at American democracy can see we are in worse trouble now than we've ever been since the Gilded Age, when this country was owned by corporations. And we have to understand this: that when business is controlled by government, it's called communism. When government is controlled by business, it's called fascism. And our job is to walk that narrow trail in between, keep big government at bay with our left hand, big business at bay with our right, and walk that narrow trail, which is free market capitalism and democracy. And in order to do that, we need a working press that is sophisticated, that is aggressive, and is determined to tell us the truth about issues, and we need an informed public. 
that, that can recognize the milestones of tyranny. And we don't have that anymore in the United States of America. Our guest today, a current woman at the Commonwealth Club, is Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Let's have an audience question, please. Hi. Um, the taxpayers fund the Federal Emergency Management Agency for responding to multiple flooding disasters from mountaintopping in West Virginia each year. So I'm wondering why Massey or other coal um, polluters don't reimburse FEMA for those costs. And if we went from coal to solar or wind farms, a lot of my environmentalist friends say migratory birds, desert tortoises, and others would be um, at peril. So could you please respond? Well, there's two questions there. Why doesn't Massey pay the costs that it's imposing on the American public? And, you know, the, the cost you talk, the FEMA cost, the emergency management cost, the flooding, et cetera, is, um, is one example. But there are many, many other examples um, of that, which the mercury in our drinking water, the, you know, the, the health of the American people, the deaths, which are proven of, you know, between 47 and 60,000 people a year, the asthma attack, all of these are the costs of coal that they they have not been required to pay because, again, we don't have true free market capitalism in this country. We have to understand the difference between free market capitalism, which makes the nation more efficient, more prosperous, and democratic, and what we have today, which is which we've embraced today, corporate crony capitalism, which is as antithetical to democracy, prosperity, and efficiency in America as it is in Nigeria. So, you know, as long as these companies aren't paying the true cost of bringing their product to market, you're going to get these distortions in the marketplace. Your second question was? Uh, will the impact on birds of, of wind power? Well, I, every, any way that you produce energy is going to cause environmental impacts. And, you know, they, you're dealing with the commons here. You're dealing with public trust assets. So what we have to do is have an t- intelligent debate about where the impacts are smallest, you know, and uh, if it's the difference between cutting down the Appalachian Mountains, or um, or uh, or or killing a few desert tortoise, or you know, uh, or or maybe endangered bats, we have to look at that and say, is there a way you can mitigate those costs by moving it? By um, by you know, in every case, we want to mitigate the cost as much as possible. But to understand there will be a cost, what is the least cost option? And if we if we actually incorporate those costs into our economic system, then the free market will answer those questions for us, and we'll say, what's the cheapest form of energy? If you make the energy producers mitigate the cost of, of bringing their product to market. And that's what the environmental laws were designed to do. The 28 laws we passed after Earth Day 1970 were all designed to restore free market capitalism in this country by forcing actors in the marketplace to pay the true cost of bringing their product to market. And, you know, today those laws have been undermined and we don't have anything that even looks like free market capitalism in this country. And what we've been trying to do is restore that. I run the river keepers and we sue polluters. We go out into the marketplace. We don't even consider ourselves environmentalists. We're free marketeers. We go out into the marketplace and find the cheaters, the polluters, and we say to them, we're going to force you to internalize your costs the same way that you're internalizing your profits. Because as long as somebody is, is getting subsidies, it distorts the whole marketplace. And none of us gets the advantages of the efficiency, the prosperity, and the democracy that free, true free market capitalism actually delivers to a society. Let's go to the next audience question, please. Um, thank you. Um, one of the most interesting ideas you've presented is um, the idea of how f- democracies fail to develop proper markets. Um, and as a teacher, I'm wondering what, how, what lessons would you want younger kids, when they're looking at these problems, to understand about the way democracies and markets interact that's one question you can take that one on or we're going to take a group of uh, seventh graders to central valley next year for our uh, outdoor ed trip are there local issues that they should approach and how should they approach them as young students who because it is a very toxic political world especially in the news it's hard to get um, good information and to judge it, what should they be doing as young, you know? Well, you know, I think the, the mo- I've been a teacher for 27 years, and I think the most important lesson that we can teach our children is critical thinking, is, you know, um, I, I show them an advertisement on television and ask them where is the lie. 
you know, where is the propaganda? How is this corporation trying to control your, you know, what the television is a box that everybody puts in their home that is used, that is a tool for corporations to sell you stuff, right? And so what are they doing? What are they doing? You know, I, I have nothing against corporations. Corporations are a great thing. They're, you know, and, 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 but they should not be running our government because corporations don't want the same thing for America as Americans want. Corporations don't want democracy. They don't want free markets. They want profits. And the best way for them to get profits is to, you know, get their hooks into a public, use our campaign finance system to get their hooks into a public official, then use that public official to dismantle the marketplace, to give them monopoly control and or, or a competitive edge, and then to allow them to privatize the commons, the air, the water, the wildlife, the fisheries, the public lands, the things that belong to, the, to all of us, and to allow them to privatize it by polluting them. In New York State, the Constitution says the people of the state own the fisheries of the state. Everybody has a right to use them. Nobody has a right to use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. That's the law. It's ancient law. It goes back to Roman times. It was in the Code of Justinian. It's in the Magna Carta. It's in the Constitution of every state. But And I pay 30 bucks for a fishing license every year. But I don't own the fish anymore. They're owned by the General Electric Company and by the coal companies that have contaminated them with mercury and PV, PCBs. So we can't eat them anymore. So they've they've made themselves rich by privatizing the public trust. And kids need to understand that relationship. And we have to understand this, that the free market is the most powerful economic in, engine that has ever been devised. But it has to be harnessed to a social purpose. It has to, it has to, we have to rationalize the free market so that it creates and enhances societies that um, are the kind of societies that we want to live in and that make America an exemplar, a, 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 a template for the rest of the world. You know, we now have in every state, except for California, laws that say that, um, that say to the utility, if you want to make money, you burn a lot of energy. So the more energy, the more coal you burn, the more energy you create, the richer you get. I have a friend called Jim Rogers who runs Duke Power, which is the second biggest, has the second biggest coal fleet in the country. He doesn't want to build any coal, right? He knows that coal is destroying the planet, destroying civilization, destroying the values that make our country great. So he wants to stop. But his shareholders want him to get his customers to leave their lights on all night and to leave the refrigerator doors open. So, and it's unfair to put a smart, gifted CEO in the position where the only way he can make money is by doing bad things. So here in California, we change those rules so that the utilities here in this state do not make money by burning energy. They make money by conserving it and by switching to wind and solar and renewables. We changed that law. My group rewrote that law in 1982. And this is not radical. It's a, you know, the way the utilities used to make money before we had deregulation was by um, capital expenditures. So the utility would say, we're going to build, we want to build a dam. They'd go to the Public Utility Commission. They'd say, we want to build a dam. The dam is going to cost $100 million. We want to make 15% annual profit on that. Here's the demonstrated need. The PUC would, would stamp it approved, and they'd go build the dam. Today, the way the utilities in California make money is they go to the PUC, and they say, we want to tear the Edison electric light bulbs out of a million homes in our distribution grid. We want to go and replace them with LED bulbs that use 12% of the power. We want to go into every home and tear out the hot water boiler and tear out the appliances and replace them with, uh, with appliances that use 20% of the power. It's going to cost us $100 million. The, the, the homeowner doesn't have to pay. We're going to pay. It'll cost us $100 million, but it will save more energy than we would create by building a dam or a power plant at, a, at, a, at a, a fraction of the cost. So the PUC then stamps it approved, and they go out and do it. Because we changed that law, Californians now use half the energy everybody else in this country uses. A Californian uses 6,000 kilowatt hours per year. The rest of us use up between 11 and 14,000. That means that Californians, anything Californians make is cheaper than what everybody else makes. And it's one of the reasons you have the biggest economy in this state. 
is because you use energy a lot more efficiently than anybody else. And it, it's not, it doesn't change people's lifestyles. It doesn't change your aspirations for your children or it doesn't diminish your quality of life. It simply incentivizes good behavior rather than incentivizing bad behavior and allows talented, smart people to make money by doing good things for their society and their country rather than forcing them to make money by doing bad things. Let's see if we can get two more questions in here for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Yes, please. In your talk, you've grouped together nuclear, coal, and oil. Um, what are the uncaptured external costs of nuclear energy, and what do you think would take um, to make nuclear a clean and um, affordable source? Well, of you know, I always say to the nuke people when they talk to me, I, I always say I'm all for nuke if they ever make it economical and if they ever make it safe. Right now, it's it's the least economical probably of any. Um, it competes with coal for probably being the least economical. They used to say when they were building these plants, and I remember this, it will be too cheap to meter. Okay? There's not a single utility in this country that will build a nuclear power plant today unless 100% of the construction costs are paid for by the federal taxpayer. So why is that? And then at the end of the life cycle of the plant, we have to store their ways for 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. Okay, you know, what, what kind of subsidy is that? What kind of deficit spending is that to dump on our children? So those are just two of the costs. The, 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 the biggest cost, you know, the, I also say safe. They say, well, we are, you know, we're, we're safe. We only had Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima. And, you know, other than that, we're really safe. The Russian National Academy of Sciences just did a study this year, which people should look at. And because the nuke industry for years has always said, well, there was only 73 people killed at, as a result of Chernobyl. This, um, this is a meta-review of all the scientific paper and case reviews of, that have been done on Chernobyl. And it shows that 968,000 people have died in Russia and the surrounding countries as a direct result of Chernobyl. Almost a million people died. Okay, but here's what I say to them, because they say, well, we're different than Chernobyl. I say, if you're safe, then get an insurance policy, just like every other industry in our country. If you're safe, get an insurance policy and then compete in the free market. You know, they can't get an insurance policy. The insurance industry won't write them a policy because they're too risky to insure. And if they had to write them a policy, it would be so expensive, they couldn't compete in the marketplace. So it's not just a bunch of hippies in tie-dyed T-shirts who are saying, you're unsafe. It's guys from Wall Street in black ties and suits who are saying, you're too, sa- you're too risky for us to insure. And in a capitalist society, the insurance industry is the final arbiter of risk. You go home and look at your homeowner's policy. Every homeowner's policy in this country has a provision in it that says, this policy does not insure you against radiation contamination caused by a nuclear power plant. So you are now insuring yourself against their mistakes. No other industry gets that gift. That is a huge subsidy. So I would say the construction, the insurance, and the storage make this so expensive that it just there's no way that it could compete in any normal marketplace. It has to be the only way it can compete is by... Uh, spending money, spending whatever profits they make to control the political process and to make get their politicians, their you know their political toadies and indentured servants in Congress to pass laws to force us to buy their power rather than economic, um, green, clean, safe, and patriotic power that we could produce for a tiny fraction of the cost. Next audience question, please. Sir, would you please speak to those who argue that coal generation with carbon capture and sequestration is the only way to reduce carbon emissions fast enough to avert catastrophic climate change? Okay, well, there's no such thing as clean coal. That's just a dirty lie. But let me tell you this. I, I debated Don Blankenship, who was the head of Massey Coal. Last year, I did a 90-minute debate with him on, on West Virginia television. And the last thing that the moderator asked us is, is there anything on which the two of you can agree? And I said, yeah, there's one thing. Carbon sequestration is a joke. And he said, absolutely, we agree on that. It doesn't work. It's a joke. 
you know, you can make it work with huge amounts of ta- taxpayer money in certain sites where you can do sequestration. Now, this doesn't mean at some point in history that they may figure out another solution rather than the geological sequestration, but, you know, sequestration, you know, algae sequestration or something like that that removes carbon and does it economically. But you're still left with the other emissions, which are mercury, ozone and particulates, acid rain, and then you're left with the extraction pollution, which is poisoning the entire sea, eastern seaboard, seaboard with mercury, lead, antimony, arsenic, selenium, uh, conductivity, and a whole raft of other pollutants. So they're just, there's, you know, from every aspect of coal, from its extraction to its transport, its deployment to, to burning it, it is just, it's filthy, dirty death. And why do we want to do it when we've got really good alternatives that can make us energy independent and that can preserve the landscapes of Appalachia and the water, you know, the next, everybody says, the next century, the, we're not going to have oil wars. We're going to have water wars. Well, where is the best water produced in this country? Appalachia. Why are we destroying that today? You know, why are we destroying it? So, and it's crazy. One more question for Robert Kennedy Jr. Yes. Um, I'd like to um, ask you if you think it's possible not to repeat the pattern, the historical pattern of way new products are brought to market in the U.S., where they're just pushed out there and then they go ahead and then terrible things happen. I mentioned that to address your points of efficiency, power and control and the tendency toward fascism or totalitarianism. For so, example, uh, thank you. So yeah, you know, yeah. Europeans have uh, sort of a principle oh. where the ha- a product has to be oh. uh, the companies who make it have to prove it safe rather than here. Uh, the burden of proof is the other way around. Well, um, excuse me. Sorry. But I wondered if there could be a change in the political process so that something like the um, Ezra Amendment that's being thought of and introduced, uh, where there would have to be a requirement of social responsibility by corporate heads who are now often generals, say Wesley Clark promoting ethanol, and generals running the pharmaceutical company, which is very fascistic to me, uh, being held accountable for things that may occur with new technologies. It came to my attention that after World War II, when we okay, were doing the you. missiles program, a moth caused the program, computer program, to shut down. So a bird dropping can cause a solar panel to not thank operate. You. Thank you for your so question. I, we need I'm to, trying we to, need say, to wrap can up. Thank you very much. Citizens review before we go ahead. Thank you. Well, I, I, I'm not really sure what the, que- the question is. And maybe you could rephrase it. Well, what I interpret it as, comp- in the United States, companies are able to put a product on the market, and it is, the burden, it's, it's sort of assumed to be safe unless it's proven to be unsafe. In Europe, products are, have to be proved safe before they can go into the market. Yeah, I mean, clearly the burden of proof for, for example, pharmaceutical drugs or foods or pesticides, um, toxic chemicals, uh, should, the, it, the, the, the current way of doing that, which is very, it's arcane, um, and it's and it, we don't have time to go into right, it. Right. Um, it is not a, a sensible way of doing things. They, you ought to have to prove safety first. But we also need strong liability laws, and we've got a government now that is undermining those liability laws, so that there are consequences if you put a product into the stream of commerce. You ought to be responsible for the damage that it does and the social costs that it imposes on the public. And that's what, you know, our traditional liability laws were meant to prevent, and the common law does prevent that. But you've got, you know, these sort of so-called tort reform movements in this country, which are just large corporations that are trying to protect themselves against the consequences of their greed, recklessness, and bad behavior. And, you know, all you need – I believe in free markets, and I believe that there should be, you know, that we should have as much freedom as possible in putting our products in the marketplace and – as much incentives for entrepreneurship, um, and, the, and, and that we should have as less lease regulation as possible. But you, you need a certain amount of regulation to protect the commons, to protect public health, and then the rest of it should be just sensibleness. If, if you put something out there that hurts people, 
we ought to be able to sue you for it and impose, you know, punitive damages if we show that you did it recklessly or knowingly. And we had those laws, but they're being dismantled now in this country because of the corporate control of our democracy. We, we have the most right-wing Supreme Court we've had in American history. This is not right-wing in terms of conservatism. There's no conservative, coherent conservative philosophy that governs the Supreme Court. Scalia, Edwards, Roberts, uh, um, uh, um, and Thomas. Uh, and Thomas. Um, if you, my my partner was a clerk to the U. the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He reads every decision. He's one of the smartest attorneys I know, and you know that's a very very hard job to get unless you're really smart. He's a lot smarter than I am. But he goes through every decision. He said there's only one coherent philosophy with this, with those five justices. And it's not a conservative philosophy. It's the philosophy is this, and you can see in the last three days, the three big decisions that came to this court are so absurdly um, transparent of this philosophy. And that philosophy is that corporations always win. If they're, if they, it's a corporation against the individual, the corporation wins. If it's government against an individual, the government wins. If it's corporations against the government, the corporation wins. Tell me one single decision by those five justices that differs from that philosophy. That's not conservatism. That is corporate control of our democracy. Teddy Roosevelt said that um, the greatest threat to American democracy would never be an outside enemy, but rather malefactors of great wealth who would steal our democracy from within. The, um, uh, Frank, or, uh, 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 Dwight Eisenhower, another Republican, warned Americans that the greatest threat, he warned Americans against the domination by the military-industrial complex, which is now part of our, our culture and part of our daily lives. A, another Republican, Abraham Lincoln, the greatest Republican in history, said during the height of World War II, I have the South, I mean, the height of the Civil War, I have the, I have the South in front of me, I have the bankers behind me, and for my country, I fear the bankers more. And Franklin Roosevelt said in World War II that the domination of government by corporate power is, quote, the essence of fascism. And Benito Mussolini, who had an insider's view of that process, said the same thing. He said fascism should not be complained, that fascism should not be called fascism, it should be called corporatism, because it was the merger of state and corporate power. And, you know, what we have to understand in our country is that you have the teabaggers saying that government is, is, big government is the big threat to our democracy, but unsheathed corporate power is an even larger threat. And we need to, you know, what we need if we're going to save the environment, number one, is to get our democracy back. Thank you all very much for having us. Our, our thanks to... Our thanks to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for his comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.